When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Notebook. I am Marc-Antoine Godin with Arpen, who's uh, speaking to us live from Winnipeg, where the Canadians are starting their longest trip of the season. How you doing, Arpen? I'm actually in a, I'm actually in a padded room. Okay. Because, uh, because, because of... Uh, Anyhow, no, just this is just my surroundings. I'm actually in some sort of a lounge in the bowels of Canada Life Center as the Jets are skating just outside where I am. Yeah. Uh, the Canadians are going to skate shortly. Um, so just wanted to get this, uh, get this recorded before I can go see what's going on with the Canadians, uh, for Monday night's game against the Jets, against the red hot Winnipeg Jets, where we're playing very well and, um, look to have come out quite all right of the Pierre-Luc Dubois saga and probably are thanking their lucky stars. They didn't have to deal with the Canadians finally. Well, absolutely. Gabriel Villardi has been, uh, has been very good since he came back. And uh, it's for a team that struggles to, uh, to retain their top talent. At least they did very well in that, uh, uh-huh. uh, in, on the, in that trade, but uh, talking about the Montreal Canadians, I mean, yeah, I just mentioned that they're starting their longest trip of the season. Uh, if we go back to last year, I mean, when they left Montreal and embarked on that, uh, on, on the, which was also their longest trip of the season, seven, seven game road trip, um, they were just one game below 500. Uh, oh. they were what, uh, 14, there, 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 yeah, they 14, 15, and two. That's it. 14, 15, and two. Uh, and it all unraveled and it went downhill from there. Uh, obviously they were, even more banged up than they are now, but how would you describe the perils of the, of the Christmas trip for Montreal? <laughs> Cause it's been the same well, year after year. It's always seems to be the same thing. Well, and I remember last season talking to Ken Hughes about it just in passing. And he was like, yeah, we have to get out of doing this every year. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's quite obvious what this trip does to this team. And listen, right now it's not all that consequential, although it could ultimately swing the Canadian season closer to what we expected the Canadian season to be. Um, you know, at 500, it's not as if they're right in the thick of it, but they're not that far from a playoff spot. It's not unreasonable for the players and the coaches to think, Hey, we're right there uh, by the end of this trip which is not only a long trip that straddles a pretty significant break for Christmas. You know, they have six days between games. Uh, they play Friday night in, uh, in Chicago, and then they don't play again until the 28th. So that's six days in, in Carolina. Um, but by the end of it, because it's not only a long trip, it's, you know, you're playing Winnipeg, 
Uh, Minnesota has been playing well since John Hines came in. Then there's obviously there's Chicago. Carolina has been struggling a bit, but that's a really tough team. Florida, Tampa, Dallas. I mean, you're really you're playing some of the top teams in the league yeah. on this trip, not on top of being on the road for so long. So, so would it be inconceivable? I mean, last season they 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 won the first game of the trip and then lost their next seven games. So it really solidified. Um, and if you remember correctly, that that trip was also like a big lesson that Martin Saint Louis still refers to to this day. How we how we learned that you can't just assume that just because you you've settled something in your team's game that that thing is now settled and that you can just leave it by the on the side and not and not deal with it. And and he's he's applied some of those lessons this year. Um, most notably, spending two days working on the forecheck, which is something the Canadians were doing quite well at the beginning of the season. Then. Just prior to leaving for California in that game, that infamous game in Boston, uh, it was a it was a total disaster, and now seems to have righted itself. And so that's, you know, we'll see what kind of other lessons they draw from their experience last season. But it's it's yeah, it's it's a dog of a trip, and it is every year. And as we mentioned in a previous episode, it can now be called the circus trip because the Bell Center is committed to the Cirque du Soleil during the holiday season. I believe there's still a couple of years left on that agreement. Uh, so this isn't changing anytime soon, at least not the between Christmas and New Year's part. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not as big of a deal now because no one really expects the Canadians to compete for a playoff spot, but when they do expect to compete for a playoff spot, um, you know, this trip is going to be a real, a real thorn in their side. And, and it sh- we should make it clear that every team has one trip a year somewhat like this you know that's that's really difficult and that really and, and so the canadians are, are not unique in that regard but um but this is it's the timing of it and the annual nature of it and how we've seen how often it just goes sideways for the canadians at this point in the season um that i think the current management group is going to do everything in its power to change it um once they're contractually able to yeah there were two things the um The December 23rd game, I mean, this year it's not on 23rd, but whenever there's been, I remember François Gagnon of RDS used to dig into those, those, those dates and he figured out that the December 23rd game was the, the one that the Canadians never won. But between Christmas and New Year's Eve also, the two games in Florida are always a pain in the ass. I mean, I can't remember the last time the Canadians won in Tampa Bay. They did win in Florida on, in 2018, but that's that's about it. I mean, this is this is really grueling. And, and you, it's funny because a few days ago, after the game against Nashville, uh, Brendan mm-hmm. Gallagher mentioned that the team was looking to get some momentum ahead of that trip and and find their legs and, and get into a rhythm. Uh, Because they know full well that this is the sort of trip that can cut any sort of momentum. Um, mm-hmm. Judging by the last few games, you know, you mentioned the four check. Um, is it fair enough? Is it fair to say that out of the, you know, gaining five points out of a possible eight uh, and the way that they played, that they've been able to gather some, any sort of momentum? Uh Maybe. I don't know. I mean, they do have things to build on. Uh, but, you know, that Pittsburgh game being up three, three, one in that game and, and letting it, letting it get away from them. Um, even the New York game, allowing them to climb back into it in the third period with a four nothing lead. Uh, you know, the, those games, 
I mean, I guess less so the Islanders game, just because there were such good vibes around it. You know, Josh Anderson scoring twice, the big standing O, Cole Caulfield getting off to Schneid and scoring a goal and being just the happiest person alive to do so. Um, <laughs> it kind of overshadowed the what appears to be a nightly lull in the Canadians game in that third period. Um, but if you look at the glass half full side, you know, you look at the first two periods, that's about as well as the Canadians can play. And, yeah. and it should be, you know, it should be noted. The Islanders were on the second night of a back-to-back. The Canadians, that hasn't been a given for the Canadians to be able to jump all over teams. But that Pittsburgh game, uh, they were also facing a team on the second half of the back-to-back. Um, they've lost games in that situation several times this season. Uh, but so, yeah, to answer your question, no. I don't, I don't know if there's any tangible, real momentum per se. There's some... There's some things that they can cling to mm-hmm. that they, they started doing better. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of things they need to clean up. And it's going to be a tough task tonight in Winnipeg against a team that's really rolling. So, um, and that's, that's a heavy, tough team to play against. So this will be a big test and we'll see, uh, we'll see how they come out of it. Against uh, the Islanders, it was the seventh game this season that they played against a team that was on this, on the, uh, You know, on 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 the back of a back second half of a back second half of a back to back, first win out of those seven games. So it was about time that they uh, they jumped on those teams. Um, but what we saw, you mentioned the first 40 minutes against the Islanders. Probably that's the, I mean, the Islanders they they, they might they they look tired, uh, but they're still a team that plays over 600 and they're, they they've been effective this season. But you know, if you Discount the opponent, or you can always look at mitigating factor to to diminish a performance or to overblow a, a you know a bad bad game. But if you just look at the way the Canadians played, I think that they're the way that they established their forecheck against the Islanders. Uh, you know, it looked a little bit like the way that they played against uh, Columbus a few weeks ago when they were uh, on the second half of a back to back. And they, they established their forecheck very well there, too. And I think that this is really a part of Martin Saint-Louis' um, style of play that he wants to establish. He wants to implement uh, that, you know, that, that sort of style with, with, through his concept and through his concepts. And the forecheck, it feels, like, it feels to me as though the Montreal Canadiens under Martin Saint-Louis will try to play... A, a game that's similar to what Rod Brandemore is is coaching his uh, his Carolina Hurricanes. You know how effective they've been the last, maybe not not as much this year because they're they're sort of unrecognizable this year so far. But the previous three seasons, they were the most dangerous teams on the forecheck, and they were they were all over. They were on top of the opponent constantly, and this is really how Martin Saint Louis wants his players to to play. It's actually. It's actually not very different from how Dominique Ducharme wanted this team to play. It's, it's really a similar mantra. Like Dominique Ducharme used the word pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pressure all over the ice. I mean, that's basically what Martin St. Louis is saying. It's when he says, I want my team to play defense as soon as we lose the puck, whether that's 200 feet from our net or in our zone. Yeah. Um, and if we do so, we can avoid having uh, having to play in our zone too much. Well, that's, that's what Dominique Ducharme wanted them to do. And that's what made that that Daniel Gallagher Tatar line so successful is they were so good at that because of their skating and because of their smarts, they were able to apply that pressure everywhere. And they were a very difficult line to play against as a result. It's not all that different. Um, I agree that Rod Burnamore tries to preach the same thing 
to his team. Um, they're obviously kind of going through a dip right now, but it's, it's just, the thing is it's a very taxing way to play. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, I mean, this is what makes the LA King system so kind of beautiful is that they incorporate this super high pressure style where they are defending as soon as they leave the lose the puck in the offensive zone. They have two guys often converging on the puck. It's really difficult to get a clean exit against them. But when they don't have that, that's when they sit back in their one three one. So they have like kind of the best of both worlds. They have this really high pressure part, which is extremely taxing. But then they have this other part, which not to, not to say that it's easy and not taxing, but it's it's not. Um, it allows them to maybe to to manage their energy a little bit because. You know, I, I think everyone would agree that sitting back in a one-three-one is less physically demanding than hounding pucks and constantly chasing after it and 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 really applying a lot of pressure. So, um, so we'll see if how sustainable this is. But in order for a system like this to work, um, and I think that's kind of the smart play with the Canadians is that they don't have well, they have one now. But I mean, the, you know, Marte Saint Louis was saying it the other day. You know, we're not a team of superstars. We're a team that that's at its best when it's rolling four lines and that we're relying on our depth. Well, that's what a system. Yeah, <laughs> We've heard that it. for so many years. We've heard I mean, that, yeah. different coaches, be, different GMs, but that's their mantra. <laughs> I mean, it should be, it should be written in the Canadians dressing room instead of the torch line um, to you from failing hands. We throw the torch it's to you from failing hands. We throw our depth. Yes. It should be the, should be the line. We roll four lines. <laughs> we roll four lines because we don't have anything better to do. We don't have any better options. So, yes, I can understand fans feeling um, annoyed to hear that, but it, that is the reality of the scene for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when uh, – and you could argue that they don't even have that much. I mean, listen, it's, it's not as if they're, they're, all four of their lines are, are really top-end NHL caliber lines for that slot. Uh, they're not. So, but, you know, with the way the team is constituted right now, I think it is sort of a better way to approach how to coach this team. I think what's going on with Rod Brindamore in Carolina is interesting because he's had these guys playing that way for so long. And he does have that top end talent to, to lean on them more and to have them play and not roll four lines to to just lean on your top stars. And he's asking them to play as if, they don't have any top stars and, and it's, and it gets, it gets taxing after a while. And so you have to wonder if at some point Martin saying we will have to switch it up if ever the Canadians get the type of talent that would warrant it. But for now, probably a good system and probably a good, you know, sorry, Marty, not a system, a concept that, um, uh, that applies to the group he has under his, under his watch. Well, it's, I, I don't think there's anything wrong in, in being aggressive on the forecheck, having good sticks, trying to close space, uh, try, you know, being on, on top of the opponent when you're defending or you're forechecking, uh, especially when it comes from your best players. Uh, I think we, we both raised our eyebrows a little bit and noted the fact that Martin Saint Louis, after the Islanders game, mentioned the fact that Yuri Slavkovsky had become one of the Canadians' best players on the forecheck. Um, mm-hmm. but, I remember also Nick Suzuki saying when, when he was reunited with Cole Caulfield, he said, well, it's been what about 10 games that we were, we were split. And as I was watching him being on the bench and watching him play, the thing that stood out at me is how good of a four checker he had become. And it's true that that's 
it's a part of Caulfield's game that has really improved. And he's, you know, mm-hmm. lifting, lifting sticks and stealing pucks and keeping, keeping the, um, the offense alive. It's something that y- you could have all the talent in the world, but if you do that, this is, this is maintaining possession. This is maintaining ozone time. And, uh, and this is something really that Caulfield needs to continue to incorporate to his game because it makes a big difference. Uh, the, That game again. That game against the Islanders, the, all of Suzuki's line, and also to a certain extent other lines too, were so effective in that part of the game. That's you have to bottle this and say this mm-hmm. is how we need to play. And sometimes I think that, yeah, no matter how tired the opponent is, or or how uh, or the identity of the opponent, you have to have a photographic memory of how good it felt and how effective you can be, and say we'll refer to these games and say okay. You remember that that this is how we need to play. There's there are there's been some losses where the Canadians were a bit scarred by the way that they performed. Well, they need and in the other end, they need some wins wherever they got them that mm-hmm. leaves them a positive impression of a guideline of a, a, a light at the end of a tunnel and and something to pursue. And I think that the the game against the Islanders was one of those. But we'll see during this trip if it had. If it's tenable in any sort of way, because Martin Saint Louis keeps saying how they're chasing consistency, well, we're about to see if if they're they're able to gain any. Yeah, like I thought the uh, that Monahan line with Evans and Anderson was also very good on the forecheck in that game, created a lot of turnovers. That first Anderson goal came as a result of a good forecheck. Um, it was, uh, but you know the the Slavkovsky thing that's that's. That's, I think, worth mentioning. And, you know, I wrote about this on Saturday, but it's really important to note where Slavkovsky's coming from. He's coming from a league in Finland where they basically don't forecheck at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a league that's really predicated and, and it, it, it's admittedly and in fairness to them, uh, more difficult to have an aggressive forecheck on, on, on a bigger ice surface. Um, you know, if the offensive player has more room to work with, they're gonna, it's going to be easier to break your forecheck. And so sitting back is probably the smarter strategic play on a big ice surface. Although, um, while they do it to some extent, I don't think that's, that's a philosophy that necessarily is, uh, is as prevalent in Sweden, for example, mm-hmm. just as a comparison. It's, it is, it is somewhat of a, of a finished thing. And so Slavkovsky is coming from that environment where he was asked to never forecheck, basically. Um, So for him to, for Marty to call him one of the team's best players on the forecheck right now and, and for him to legitimately say it, not just blowing smoke up his ass, but really it's, it's demonstrably evident that he is that. And, and what's, what's more encouraging in Slavkowski's case is that he's not doing it as the F1 all the time. You know, you look at Slavkowski, big, strong, good skater. Well, he's a natural F1 to go in there and, and wreak havoc. And while he's doing that, He's also proven effective as an F2, as an, even as an F3 at times, although I think Caulfield's best suited in that role. But it's, it's, it's not as if you go into a shift and say, okay, you're F1, you're F2, you're F3. It's just how the play unfolds and whoever's the first one there is F1 and you mm-hmm. just have to play that role. So if you're second, then you're F2, third, F3. So, you know, on Saturday night in particular, I, thought, I felt Slavkowski made a number of Really good. I mean, the Caulfield goal came off Slavkovsky arriving at the perfect time behind the net as Suzuki, as the F1, forced to pass behind the Islanders' net. Slavkovsky arrives just as it arrives, frees the puck up, 
uh, for Suzuki to set up Caulfield for 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 his first goal in in eight games. You know, that's the kind of thing that Slavkovsky's getting the rhythm of the game, the pace of it in North yeah. America on the smaller ice surface, and he's he's doing it pretty consistently, which is why I think Marty felt comfortable saying that is because it wasn't just Saturday night. It's been that way for for several games now. I would even go probably two two weeks at this point where where he's been playing that way, um, playing a smarter way on the fourth check. Uh, let's switch gears here because during that trip, I'm really curious to see how Martin Saint Louis is going to uh, to use his goalies. And there was a very interesting development over the course of the weekend in Carolina, where the Hurricanes have put uh, goaltender Antti Ranta on waivers. Ranta was mm-hmm. not picked up; was sent down to the American League. Uh, the The Hurricanes called up Quebec goaltender Yaniv Peretz, all the way from ECHL Norfolk. Uh, yeah. the, the Norfolk Admirals were actually playing in Trois-Rivières. So Peretz was in Trois-Rivières, and he flew to Rally to join the, the Carolina Hurricanes. On Sunday night, they signed uh, veteran goaltender Aaron Dell to a, uh, to a, a, a tryout. So, mm-hmm. And let's not forget that they had also Yaroslav Alak training for them for a, few, uh, for, for a little bit, but Halak didn't want to go down to the American League to pursue his... his, his It's conditioning, let's say, and, and in the hopes of getting a contract. All this to say that you have a team that's right now on the outside looking in, and they're clearly ready to make moves uh, at the goaltender position. And that's all it, it's all, all we needed to make a link with the Montreal Canadiens goalie situation. But I think mm. this is one particular situation, even more maybe than the, than the situation in Edmonton, where Jake Allen makes a lot of sense uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes. So ever since they put Ranta on waivers, I'm sort of on a trade watch <laughs> and yeah. with the expectation that something might really m- might happen soon. You know, so it's I don't know. Well, there is there is the development. Um, and this is kind of what I think the Edmonton situation should uh, should teach us, really. Um, is that, sorry, there's someone making some noise here, which is not too bad, but it's, you know, they have, like, Freddie Anderson's on IR for them. I think Don Waddell said the other day that he's about a month away from coming back. He's actually gotten back on the ice. So you look at what happened in Tampa, where Julian Breesbois decided to ride it out and, and get what you can from the goalies you have and, and make it to Vasilevsky's return. Edmonton, they decided to ride it out despite their season hanging in the balance and on the brink of disaster and, and, and made it work. You know, I mean, they got, uh, you know, and they're making it, even though Skinner's not exactly been a world beater, but all they, all they need is average goaltending. And that's kind of the situation in Carolina. I think if you do have, I mean, they do have Kachekov there. If Anderson's coming back in a month, can they ride it out? It's just, it's just creating. A situation where they're not going to be willing to overpay for anything. That's it. Um, you know, Tampa made it clear that that was not a terrible strategy in the sense, like, like if I'm another GM looking at Jake Allen, I have to balance the cost of the acquisition with how much better is Allen going to be than what I have. Allen's been 
been fine this season. Um, more than fine, actually. It's slightly above average, but I think we can call him an average goaltender in the NHL. Yeah. Um, what is the cost of average goaltending? And can I not get that with who I have while I wait for Anderson to come back or while I wait for Ranta to find his game um, in the minors? And so, um, so yes, I agree that you, we should be on acute trade watch. Uh, there's also the situation in Los Angeles where Phoenix Copley was placed on long-term injured reserve, um, not IR, LTIR. LTIR. Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, right now they have David Rinich as Cam Talbot's backup. Um, not exactly a great situation there either. Uh, it's, so a good, it's a good number three goaltender, but this season he was, he, he's playing at 901 in the American League, which is, which is not exactly stellar numbers for. No, exactly. No. So, uh, but again, he provides an option for them to ride it out. Now, yeah. can they do that indefinitely? Who knows? So, like these, so the thing is, there's like two competing factors in the whole goalie market thing is that there's a certain, there's only a select few goaltenders that really move the needle that, 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 that are difference makers. Um, no one's trading those goalies. So leave them out. However, following them is this massive blob of goalies where the high end of that blob gives you excellent goaltending, uh, but are not, don't have a proven track record or body of work that, that lends you to believe that they can do this consistently year after year after year. And at the bottom end of that blob, you have maybe slightly below average goaltending with the potential to show flashes of great goaltending from time to time. And in between, there's all this blob represents almost the entire goaltending community <laughs> in the NHL. And no one can tell you which goalie in that blob is the one that could lead you to a playoff spot or to a playoff round win or what have you. Uh, Jake Allen's in that blob. Is yeah. he, how much better, how much further up in that blob is he than David Riddich or Kachekov or yeah. Skinner? You know, it's, so this is, this is what makes me kind of leery of the situation is that the Canadians have see a certain value in Jake Allen that goes beyond his goaltending Um, does that mean they'll hang on to him just for leadership qualities? I don't think so. I think they would, they would have interest in trading him, but I think they would need to be compensated fairly. And I, I don't know if that market's ever really going to develop barring a really disastrous in injury that, that could completely derail a potential contenders playoff hopes. Yeah. I, th I think, uh, Yeah, the, the market is tricky. I think you described it pretty well. But at the same time, people need to understand that the Canadians are in no hurry to solve that situation because it turned mm -hmm. out about as well as they would have hoped. So there's no urgency on the Montreal Canadiens side to to stop using three goalies. Because, you know, you, like Jake Allen, if people will say, oh, you know, he's been hurt by the lack, by the fact that they're using three goalies, he's not playing enough, he doesn't find his rhythm. But if he was traded to a contender where they have a three, a true number one goalie, he would probably mm -hmm. play at the same rate than he is now. So, yeah. so the, the real difference is probably in the way that guys practice. But in terms of in terms of frequency of being in front of the net, either for Primo, but especially for Allen, 
It's what mm-hmm. a usual backup goaltender, it's the usual amount of, of, of ice time he would get. So mm-hmm. the situation Canadians are in right now, the longer this plays out, the longer it allows them to watch Caden Primo play and get a better read on what they have with him. So they have to, they're in a position where they have to sit back and wait. Because they're not going to knock at people's door and say, "Hey, can you get a goalie off our hands?" Because that's that that's not the situation that they're in. So they need to just wait for a team to say, "Okay, the internal solutions we've run out of them, or we've run out of of uh, uh, t- t- professional trials that we can send to 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 this one or that one, uh, and let's seek for some outside help." I th- I am I have no doubt whatsoever. That Kent Hughes has spoken to each of those teams, whether it's Carolina, Edmonton, LA, uh, New Jersey, maybe. Um, yeah. So all those teams that could potentially need a goaltender, but you need to you need to wait out and see if the Canadians are going to be offered something that they will consider because they will trade Jake Allen if it makes their team better, and if there is such a slim market for Allen that makes it so that. Yeah, for another team, it would make sense to add Allen, but they're not willing to give up much for him. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the what's the uh, what's the impetus for the Montreal Canadiens to trade him at this point? So that's why uh, there's not a huge market. I don't think that Edmonton can be considered in that market anymore because they write in the ship. Um, you know, I just mentioned Jersey; uh, they were w- without young goaltender Nico Dawes for. All of the, you know, the first third of the season, he just came back from an injury, uh, just in time because uh, Vitek Vanacek is day to day now. So Dawes was backing up uh, Akira Schmidt yesterday, but right now mm. they've got three goalies around their team. You mentioned Copley in in LA. The the thing also is that all those teams that could be interested in the goalie, they they should be able to fit Jake Allen under their cap. So either they clear money first, except, except Edmonton, yeah, yeah. So oh, sh- I mean, d- you could also say Buffalo, but Buffalo at this point, there's no point for them to throw away some assets where they're so far behind already. Um, yes. So, but it, either they clear cap space before, or they ask the Canadians to take some money back, take a contract back. So this also comes into play because you look at the number of, uh, of teams that are under. I don't know, under $2 million dollars of, of cap space, and it's the vast majority of them. So that, that yeah. really complicates matters uh, even more than if, if a team was to acquire Primo. But if your team's struggling in nets and, and you have high ambitions, I don't think that turning to Primo is, is a, a safe way to go and say, okay, well, we'll rely on our hopes on an unproven goaltender. Yeah, no, and that's that's a, that's an important point to make. You know, Jake Allen's at at three point eight five, which is perfectly reasonable for a goaltender, but it's 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 a lot and under the current environment. Um, Carolina is the one that's interesting because if they were to trade Ranta in that deal to get yeah. Allen, so it'd be Ranta plus for Allen. Um, you know, they can make the money kind of work. Like Allen's rent is at a $1.5 million cap hit. So that's about two, there's about a 2.3 million, roughly $2.35 million difference between the two. Carolina right now in cap friendly says they're projected to have 2 million in space. So that's not a difficult bridge to, to, to build. Yeah. But 
it would also mean Carolina committing essentially the rest of their cap space to Jake Allen and, and preventing them from doing anything of note at the trade deadline. And again, if you're Don Waddell, is Jake Allen worth that? Not only the assets it would cost you to get him, but the cap space you're going to commit to him, which prevents you from making improvements elsewhere. Where, And frankly, goaltending is not the only issue in Carolina right now. You know, they're not playing all that well or not at least to their potential. So he might be looking at other areas of the team that he'd like to upgrade and, and, and making a deal where you're sending out Ranta and bringing in Allen really handcuffs you in terms of being able to make that deal. So, mm-hmm. um, again, it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a great spot for the Canes because I do think there's like a sincere desire to end this three goalie thing. Uh, I think you're correct in saying they're not desperate to do it, but it's something they would like to do. Uh, but I think more realistically, it's not going to happen until probably February at the mm-hmm. earliest, you know? So it's, so yes, like these things are going to happen. Injuries are going to pop up. And every time an injury pops up to a goaltender, our antenna are going to go up and going to be like, oh, here's Montreal Canadiens trade watch, you know, but it's, uh, there's yeah, but- so many factors involved that it, that's, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily going to happen anytime soon. But to me, what's interesting with Ranta is the fact that since he cleared waivers, if the Canadians were to acquire him, they could send him down to Laval. Yeah. They could make them, they could make him their third goalie, have a guy who would, you know, really help the rocket, you know, right in the ship and he would be their insurance policy. That's, that's, oh. I think that's great. You don't, you don't acquire anti Ranta before he, he goes through waivers because you just perpetuate the three goalie system that you're in the first place you, you wanted to, uh, yes. you wanted to stop. But once you're able to send that third goalie in the American league, stash him there. And it's a different story. And the other thing I Ranta, wanted to Ranta would have to want to report though. That's the thing. That's the one factor there that I hadn't considered when, when I first thought of that, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, he, he agreed to report, I believe they sent him to Chicago, which is not an affiliated AHL no, team. Not. It used, it was their former affiliated team in Carolina. Um, he agreed to go. But it was a question on whether he would agree to go, and so that's that's the one factor there. That if he go, if he were to get traded to Montreal, and Montreal were to sign to Laval, maybe he'd be like, "Well, I'm not going." There's others to it, and so that would because there's a definite need for a goalie in Laval. Like that's for that's sure. the other factor for that sure. the need to consider they, here is that they need they, to get they need to do who can, something who can that. stop a puck in Laval because it's becoming um, know, pretty demoralizing, a little bit demoralizing <laughs> the fact that they can't really or that the goaltending is. Let's be kind and call it inconsistent, but I mean, really, it's it's been somewhat consistently bad, and so um, <laughs> they need uh, they need they need to do something because you know it's, it is impacting the development of some key young players down there. Um, you know, they would like them to to develop in a winning environment. Well, getting a competent goalie there, and not to say you know, listen, Jacob Dovich could become a competent goalie at some point. You know, it's he's a rookie, he's an Asian rookie, he's having difficulty. It's fine. Um, but yeah, having a veteran to, to sort of, you know, we've talked about it, you know, having the Kevin Poulet type, Palanti Ranta is like the luxury Kevin Poulet type. Like it's, oh, yeah. it's, you know, this is a really, couldn't ask for a better, um, option to try and stabilize a team with some solid goaltending than by putting anti Ranta there. But, 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 we'll but you know, it's a- w- one thing also is that, you know, I mentioned the fact that a team would need to send a player back, whether it's, You know, Carolina or, or any other situation till the deadline, 
I think what's interesting for the Canadians is that they can get a very significant contract back because of Carey Price and Kirby Doc being on LTIR. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the important thing for them is that they haven't even no no, but they have the, they have that luxury yeah. whenever like they, they want. have the option. Right. They have the so, op- of course, but yeah, they, they won't they won't need they still have I think seven million dollars in LTIR space just from Price. So. Yeah. So what I was saying is that the important thing for them is that their contract, the contract of that player would have to run out at the end of the season. So they can gather, they can get a ton of bad contracts if it helps make them, uh, helps them make a deal. But mm. uh, the only, the only criteria is that it would have to be the last year of that contract. So that's, uh, that's something to, uh, to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. All right, uh, let's uh, let's move to the mailbag. We had uh, we had plenty of questions that were sent to us either by email or by uh, on Twitter. So uh, well, let's get to it because we we've got a few um, through our uh, email, which is basuandgodin at gmail.com. There's uh, Antoine Mathieu who's writing to us. He says, "Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for your awesome work, and glad you've continued to work together. You make a great team." Thank you for that, Antoine. Um, a lot of time has been spent criticizing the team's awful start for games and lack of goals in the first period. In your opinion, how is that problem fixable? Without doing too much research, I have found that Habs have been fortunate schedule-wise to face a team on the second half of a back-to-back. They rarely capitalize on that and come out with a win. We mentioned we, we brought that up earlier. Is it a coaching mm-hmm. issue as far as getting players motivated? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I, I think judging by talking to various players, I think the Canadians are often well prepared to face a given opponent. Um, you know, this year before the Jets game, the Canadians have scored 17 first period goals and allowed 26. Uh, 17 first period goals is not a lot by any stretch of the imagination, considering this is, you know, this is their 31st game coming up against Winnipeg. So, um, you know, second period, 29-4, 38 against. Third period, 31-4, 36 against. So, yes, there's definitely been um, a lack of scoring in the first period. There's no doubt about that. But I feel that there have been several occasions that were similar to Saturday night where the Canadians, you know, it'd be easy to look at that and say, okay, 0-0 after one period. Must have been a pretty even period. No, Canadians thoroughly dominated that first period, just couldn't put a puck in the net. And this comes down to, I think, the eternal Canadians question is, is there enough finishing talent among their forward group? The answer is quite clearly no. So I think this is just one symptom of that, is that, yes, there are some first periods where they come out and start completely flat, and it was the period where they were doing that on a very regular basis, There have been others where that has not been the case and they still haven't managed to score. So I guess the answer would be, for me at least, is is yes and no. Like, yes, maybe the coaches need to do a better job of getting these guys ready to play right from the start. But even when they do play right from the start, it doesn't necessarily provide them with a lead or even a goal um, to work with. When you get ready to... Uh... Getting guys ready to play is not about motivating them. Motivation is something that the player has to find by himself. It's not, it's not up to the coach to crack the whip and, and motivate his players. His job is to make sure that on any given night, 
they go out there and they know what they're supposed to do. So I think that's getting a team ready for the most part when you're a professional, that's what it's about. But when you're a young team, Mike Matheson, I was talking to him about uh, after the game against Detroit when they had fallen fallen flat out of the gate. And he said, I remember back in my uh, in, during my first few years in the league with, with Florida, and I've always remembered how it's not easy to be ready on time and, and, and you know, come, come out strong out of the gate every single night. And he says, that's a, that's an underrated aspect of hockey that you, you always assume that all oh, guys are going to come out strong, but whether it's just the, the mood before a game where things are just not, not quite as hype as they should be, or the other team is completely jacked up and they'll, they'll come out like bursting like crazy. Uh, it doesn't take much in a, in a league where there's so much parity that if if you don't have, let's say you, you come out strong the first four or five minutes, all you need to do is take a penalty and be be scored against, and all of a sudden that rhythm is is, is broken. So the, I thought it was interesting what Matheson said because he said this is something that when you're a younger team, it's a it, in terms of preparation, is the more difficult thing to adjust to. And he said it's going to take us some time before getting getting acclimatized to that. So, I, I I mean it's we're not professional hockey players. We it's it's hard to put ourselves into that situation. So I'll take I'll take Matheson's words for it. But uh, to me, it's 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 a lot about the players' uh, preparation themselves more than what the coach does or doesn't do before a game. <laughs> Yeah, let's continue on that theme of the coach. Uh, we have Christian Hassey who wrote into the email um, to say, um, I think it is fair to say at this stage of the season that the progression has not yet taken off the way management or fans would have hoped, with perhaps a few exceptions. Behind the bench seems somewhat similar. Do you see any improvement in Martin San Luis' guidance? We as fans don't see much practice time and base our decisions on in-game results. I think he's a little too set in his ways regarding lineup construction and special teams. The D zone hybrid zone slash man on man system is questionable at best with players losing their coverage on switch offs, which creates golden opportunities for the opposition. I think MSL would benefit by having a season pro on his staff versus the current makeup, a Gerard Gallant type, perhaps curious to hear your thoughts on Marty and his progression or lack thereof. There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot Damn. there. Yeah. Set in his ways. Well, regarding lineup construction, I mean, he doesn't have much to work with. I mean, you can move guys around, but there's there's not. We uh, I mentioned it in the previous podcast. The fact that he cannot take away some ice time from a struggling guy and replace him with somebody else because he doesn't have that somebody else. Uh, there there's three or four legitimate NHL forwards that are on the shelf right now. And I mean, if he wants to you know, tighten the reins on 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 Anderson, Armia, or anybody else, he doesn't have. The horses, they doesn't have the guys to to, to replace those ones. So uh, I understand why he would be a bit set in his ways. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with the the hybrid D zone that has been uh, that's been causing so many so many opportunities for the other team. I think that an even bigger issue was how they would uh, defend, uh, how they would cover the rush. Uh, that especially earlier in the year, at some point. The other team, because there were so many turnovers, uh, they were they were not ready and not structured enough when the team was rushing to their end. But 
talking to players over the course of the season, they've, for the most part, the defensemen are very comfortable with the way the team has been defending while once they're set into their zone, because yes, there may be some, some ozone time that's given to the opponent, but uh, they keep them outside for the most part. Uh, so it's, it's really rush attack. That's been a, a bigger issue, but I fully agree with the fact that having a, a, a seasoned coach, somebody added to the staff that would be not so green would be extremely helpful to this team. And, I don't know if it's because Martin St. Louis didn't have a coaching network and he did not know what he preferred and uh, he did not know what to look for. And he's, he thought, okay, well, I'll just continue with the guys that were already there. Uh, maybe it's a, it's an ego thing saying, well, you know what? I, I believe in what I'm, uh, uh, I believe in what I believe. I'll apply it and I don't need some, some, you know, some, uh, some gray hair to, uh, <laughs> to help me with that. But I think that it, it, it's, it, when you look at the coaching staff, it's baffling to see how little experience they got collectively. I don't know if it's going to happen because the more, the more years advance, uh, the less probably Martin Saint Louis will think that he needs it. But, uh, it's, it, it's, it's obvious. It's the least experienced coaching staff in the league. Yeah. I would agree with all that. I would just add, yeah, I think the, the game tactics, um, game adjustments, in-game adjustments is something that I think Marty himself would recognize is, is something that he needs to improve on. Um, and that'll come with experience. But, you know, he says, he often says his favorite part of the game is, is breaking down an opponent and finding the holes. Um, how to attack those holes, I think is where maybe some progression might be required because when, when whatever he planned for going into the game isn't working, he is sometimes a little slow to adjust to it. And so that would be one area where I would, uh, I would think that there's, there's some room for improvement mm -hmm. um, for Marty as a head coach. Yeah. Um, let's go to our, our Twitter account. This one's kind of short and sweet um, from moment 61 on X. Uh, Gouli making more defense errors. Is he feeling pressure? Yeah. Uh He's, 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 he's feeling the ill effects of uh, increased ice time. I think it's the first real lull that he has in his career. I think that in the last three weeks or so, he hasn't been as effective. Uh, uh -huh. It's funny because when we did our, our quarter mark report, uh, we brought it up either as their close to their MVP or their most improved guy. And, he, you know, he was right up there among the Canadians' best players. But since then, he hasn't been the same. And you look no. at all the, you know, since that that infamous game in Boston, uh, statistically, it's it's he fell off a cliff. Uh, the mm. when it comes to either the 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 the, the shot rate, uh, the goals for and against, the expected goals, the expected goals before the game in Boston. All right, he was playing on average twenty minutes a night, and his expected goals average before the game in Boston was 56.4%. And since then, it's been 38.5. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a massive, massive decrease. And it's, he's the one that's been affected the most. I think that at some point, uh, having, not having David Saval there, even though he plays on the other side, but there, they were, They had three guys to fill the top four role because Jonathan Kovacevic at some point reached, you know, his, his limits. Uh, but it's been 
it, it's been a burden for, for Gouldy. He went from 20 minutes to over 22 since then. And it, it might not seem like much, but when you, you add those two plus minutes, if it's against top com, uh, competition, it's enough to make you make one, you know, one obvious mistake per game or be on the ice for one goal against uh, more. So it's, I, I think that it's just a growing pain, but of a guy that out of a guy who's being asked probably too much for what a guy who doesn't even have a full season of hockey in the NHL under his belt, you know, he's, he's, it's, they're, they're treating him as if he was a 10 year veteran and he's not. Yeah, actually, uh, I wrote about that earlier this week. I spoke to Caden Gooley about this, um, you know, and he was pretty upfront about the fact that, you know, this is, yeah, he's struggling. It's been difficult. Um, but, you know, he confidence is never something that's been an issue for Caden Gooley. So to answer the question about pressure, um, I think, yeah, Caden Gooley feels or is applying a certain amount of pressure um, to himself because his standard has gone it's where he's not meeting his standard, his own standard of play. And he recognizes it. Um, but Marty didn't really buy the whole, you know, I asked Marty if, if is, it was Savard's absence, a reason why Gouli was getting more difficult minutes. And he didn't really buy it. He's like, listen, he plays against the top two lines and he's played against the top two lines his whole career, his whole, ever since last season, this is what we've asked him to do. Is it fair? Like, is he a bit young for that? Yes. But that's his reality. That's all. That's been the only reality he's known in the NHL. So it's, um, so yes, he's not a 10 year veteran. Yes, he's young, but all of the results we've seen from Kane Gooley has essentially been in the top four role today. Yeah. So I think Marty's right in that regard and that a dip is not necessarily because of the role. The role hasn't changed all that much, even with Savard's injury uh, or even with Savard's return. He's still being asked to play against top forwards. He's still being asked to play you know, significant minutes. Um, it's just that he, you know, Gouley himself said he feels he's getting beat to the middle of the ice a bit too, too much and a bit too, too, to his liking. Um, and I think one element of that and asked him about it is that if, you know, I've been on him since he arrived because, you know, I, if you watched him play in the WHL, Caden Gouley was a menacing defenseman. Like he was mm -hmm. a, an intimidating factor entering the zone. If you entered the zone on his side, which teams actually rarely did when he played in the WHL, they would always go to his partner's side of the ice because crossing that blue line, if you didn't have your head up, he's going to make you pay. And so he hasn't done that all that much in the NHL. And he's always said it's because I'm trying to get used to the skill level, the speed, everything. Like it's, it's not as easy to catch guys. So I asked him, well, do you, but he's, but he's always said this, that's an element of my game I want to bring in. And I think you've seen it a bit where he's starting to lay some bigger hits on players. And um, and so I asked him, do you think, like he said, I'm just being too aggressive. That's why I'm getting beat to the middle. And he admitted that maybe this was part of it, that he's trying to be a bit more physically imposing defenseman. And it was leading to him getting beat. Maybe he has to dial that back a little. But, you know, I, I would say, having talked to him about this very thing, I don't think he's feeling pressure necessarily, but not external pressure, mm -hmm. but he's he's definitely aware of what's going on. So, do you, do you think that when he plays with Baron, he's also he needs to be conscious of the fact that Baron can can make the odd mistakes too, and playing with a guy who's who's got a higher risk 
possibility than him may cause him to co to make mistakes of his own? No, not necessarily. I, I mean, I do think, you know, both Baron and Gouley believe that they see the game in a similar way and they see a lot of similarities in each other's games. Um, you know, there's no need to remind people that these two were paired together at the World Juniors, um, were put together basically on the first day of camp and never left each other. Um, they like the chemistry between the two of them. But there's, you know, I think, yes, Baron makes a lot more mistakes that are blatantly obvious. But I think right now, Gouley's making his fair share of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't think it's a bad thing for these two to go through this together because this could be a pairing for the Canadians going forward. And anytime there's a combination, and right now there's two, there's Slavkovsky, Caulfield, Suzuki, and there's Gouli Baron. Those are the two things going on on the Canadians right now that I could see being a thing when they might actually be good. Yeah. So I think there's value in letting them kind of work through it and and build chemistry as a pair in that way. But yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if. I don't know if right now if one is any more susceptible to mistakes. Probably Barron a little bit, but I mean, I don't know if I, I don't think Gouli is playing mistake-free hockey either, and I don't uh -huh. think Barron is the reason why. You know, I don't. That's my opinion. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap it up with one one last. Uh, Scott Bergwin is asking us. Uh, oh, that's a fun one. Which UFAs should Kent use focus on? Uh, well. That's, He's he's already focused on the on the on the most important one, which was which was Sam Montabo. So that's taken care of. Um, I don't know the extent to which the Canadians are prepared to really hit the UFA market this summer. Um, what do you think? I don't know. I, 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 well, what I think that uh, in in an ideal world, the way that they're they're built. Uh, they would probably be more ready to make a big splash in the summer of 2025. Mm -hmm. But the, the real game breakers are so few and far between to hit the market that when one hits it, you have to be ready and say, and make your decision is to, you know, jump on the opportunity and make your move. It might happen a bit earlier than you would have planned, but yeah, if, if the opportunity is not to present itself, you, it might not be ideal. But you could argue also that uh, when when the Rangers signed Artemi Panarin, even though Panarin wanted to play in New York, maybe mm -hmm. that they were not entirely ready in that in in their retooling or rebuilding to to welcome him. But it it paid off big time. It was an opportunity an opportunity that presented itself that you can't say no to. That's it. So in yeah. the unlikely event where William Nylander uh, is not signed by the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think this is something that they absolutely need to consider uh, mm -hmm. because he's someone who could really help uh, bolster their top six. I'm not sure if they need necessarily to add a centerman, uh, find someone who's clearly better than, than Nick Suzuki, but you know, they could also add a centerman and move Kirby Doc to the, to the wing. I think that what they need to focus on is making sure that their top six in the for the next five years will be better than it currently is through some outside help. Neil Ender to me is is a, would be uh, no matter the cost. I think the the Canadians have the money for that sort of uh, acquisition. 
he seems to me like the right player also. He seems like a guy who wants to make a difference, even on his team, uh, on a team where there's always one or two superstars ahead of him on the billboard. Uh, but I would, I would put a lot more money and time on Nylander than, let's say, on Sam Reinhardt, for example, who's another guy who could be a UFA at the end of the season. Yeah, that's, that's I think, the if that began that whole thing on Nylander is is a big if. You know, I, I really don't think the Maple Leafs are going to let him walk out the door. Um, you know, he's been underpaid for a long time. You know, his, his cap hit is, is just below $7 million a year, which is an incredible bargain for a guy who's almost at a point and a half per game at this point. Um, Reinhardt to me is, is, is I think uh, somewhat, I don't want to listen. I don't want to discount his quality as a player. I've always thought he was a good player, even in Buffalo when things weren't going that well. Um, always kind of liked the, the nature of his game. He's not, you know, he plays a hard game uh, with some skill, uh, you know, would definitely shore up the right side of a second line in the future for the Canadians, you know, or even a first line, depending on how you, where you would slot Suzuki. Um, you know, the, the interesting one to me, well, there's two interesting guys, you know, cause you, you mentioned quite rightly that if a game breaker presents himself, then you have to, you have to, you have to look into it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, well, again, like this is, I, I don't think there's anything, to be done here. I don't think he would even be interested, but like the Steven Stamkos situation in Tampa, if he were to accept like a short-term deal, which I don't think he really would, but he's 34. It's, I don't know what's going on in Tampa with him. And yeah. I don't think the Canadians, that's not the type of player that they should go after because that's the type of player that a cup contender would add as sort of a final luxury item, if you will. But, you know, you look at the, you look at the, the offering, I mean, Jake Gensel's contracts up. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting guy. Yeah, that's you know Tara Vinen in Carolina. There's you know there's a couple of guys around, but I mean, really, it, to be honest, I, I just don't think, and I and I don't think the Canadians feel they're there yet, and I don't think they're there yet, and I think the only reason they should go swimming for a big fish. At, And you in unrestricted free agency is if it's an opportunity that doesn't come up all the time, you know? And so it's like, it's Nylander is, is that guy. Other than that, I don't think the Canadians should be overextending themselves. And frankly, just because they have cap space now, like you don't want to spend it for the sake of spending it. And you want to, you want to be ready to strike when that right opportunity comes up. And so I think probably the summer after might be, might be where they're looking a little bit more than, than this coming summer. The summer after, you got Leon Dreisaitl, you got Miko Rantanen and Brock Besser, uh, who are like three very interesting players. The thing with the UFAs, though, is that uh, you know that list is not getting any longer. It just shortens itself with uh, which each yeah. is signing. Uh, but one thing, though, is that the Canadians have a lot of draft picks. And we've seen under Marc Bergevin that... Uh, The possibility of a of an offer sheet was not a pipe dream. It could become a reality, even though it was very dubious the way that they handled it with Sebastian Aho. I don't know oh. exactly how Kent Hughes and Jeff Gorton uh, what what they think of offer sheets, but that's also to me a possibility that the Canadians could could look at. 
A, because of the number of, of picks they got, but also because usually it involves players that are slightly younger. And having guys that are, if you go after guys that are between 20 and 26, then you have a, a much longer runway uh, to, to have those young talents grow with your team. And in that sense, well, that's where Elias Peterson comes into play. Uh, he's only one year away from free agency, but that's he's 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 a key cog for for the Canucks. Uh, may, uh, there's also Raymond uh, in uh, Lucas Raymond in Detroit. Matthew Beniers also will be finishing his uh, his entry level contract in Seattle. So those are three guys. I don't know. I'm just asking a question. I I, I have no you know inside information on that, but. It, it seems to me like the Canadians are in, in a better spot to do that than to attract like a top end proven talent through UFA. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I would be, I'd be surprised if the Canucks didn't get something. They're already talking to Pedersen, so I sure. think that's sure. something's going to get done there. But yeah, it's, it's in general the offer sheet route um, is not. Not the most efficient way of going about it. It is a tool that not enough teams use and it need to be used more strategically. But yeah, you're right. The, the, the large war chest of draft picks that they've accumulated does allow them to consider that. But again, I think, I think the Canadians need to add more foundation mm -hmm. before building a garage, you know, kind of thing or building a, a room above the garage kind of thing. Like it's, it's it, it really is. <laughs> You know, they need... What does that mean? Need a, well, like, you know, the room above the garage, like the, oh, let's build an extra room. Like, it's a luxury item, you know? It's something yeah. that you do when the rest of the house is built and, and, and you're just adding space for the sake of it or for, you know, out of out of necessity maybe even. But still, it's like the last thing you do. Uh, the Canadians are still building the basement, you know? So it's it's really... I don't think that that, that period of time is anywhere... I don't think it's on the horizon, mm -hmm. you know, it's, 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 and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of things they need to find out. They need to see if Kirby Doc can play a full season at some point. They need to see what Alex Newhook looks like for over a longer period. Um, what Slap will look like next season, you know, maybe he turns another corner and becomes more of a dominant, you know, actually starts producing some goals and some points and maybe even this season, like there's a lot of information that I think there's still need to gather. I think there's still an asset acquisition mode and not assets like the ones we're talking about, but like just base assets, you know, and, 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 and I think the trade market is where I think you'll see much more activity from the Canadians than the USA market in the short term. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'd agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We were just answering that question about free agency, mm -hmm. but I'm totally with you on that. Probably that uh, trades will be uh, a more efficient way for them to go about their business. Uh, all right, Arpin, I'll let you go to Morning Skate. Uh, enjoy mm -hmm. the game tonight in Winnipeg. Enjoy Winnipeg as much as you can. I know that sometimes it's not always easy, but at least the, the weather is not as uh, as uh, biting as it can be. So uh, this is... Uh, This is a cold trip. When you do Winnipeg and and Minnesota, it can be uh, can be mighty. And Chicago, times. and Chicago. Yeah, the windy city, right? What yeah. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Well, have fun. Uh, we're going to talk again on Friday. So thanks everybody for listening and watching, and uh, take care of yourself. Bye bye.